You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. Good morning, listeners. Good morning, Anthony. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Fred. Good morning, Anthony. Good good morning. Good night, John Boy. Yeah. Okay. That's one way to start. So we've got to start with a follow-up from a previous episode where we talked about um, the CFO of Florida, who's also the state fire marshal and one of his mother's favorite children. Um, He's really, this was the, the story where he was complaining against Tesla saying that all of these electric vehicle batteries started get it catching on fire when hurricane Ian came in and submerged these cars and and to me and my non-electrical engineering background thought this just sounds like nonsense fred hedged his best and said maybe and so he um this guy has upped his stakes and he's you know contacted 30 ev manufacturers and nitzer responded to him saying yes kind of sort of that there's a there's a potential problem, but their data was on older batteries from like 2014. Um, what's the what's the latest story on this with this Florida man? Well, he's um, you know when we first talked about him, I was I was I hadn't done my due diligence and thought he was just the CFO of Florida, but he's also the state fire marshal, which is of course critical in this circumstance. And um, he's been putting some interesting things on Twitter that I've seen. He's got a, uh, it looks like a drone video of some of the vehicles that have been salvaged from hurricane Ian and all of the ice vehicles are parked very tightly uh, together. And then the EVs are all separated by a significant distance in the lots. Um, so a lot of interesting things going on. And, you know, he's documented a number of fires that have taken place. Um, we still haven't, don't have a number on that, but you know, it appears there is some sort of issue with vehicles that um, with EVs that have saltwater intrusion Um as they dry, you know, I don't know if I would describe them as the ticking time bomb that he did, but it's, you know, battery fires can certainly be very powerful. So as the state fire marshal, does he stand like on the border and be like, nope, we're full. Too many people in this club. Come back later. No, you know, I don't know. <laughs> they're not all going to work. Okay. I don't think he's Marshall Dillon. I mean, he. he he, he's not that kind of marshal that wears a badge and has a six shooter on his hip. Well, no, it's Florida. Maybe he does have a six shooter on his hip. I think it's, you know, it's pretty clearly a political shot at the Biden administration's support of EVs. I mean, that's what this boils down to. I mean, there are, you know, when a hurricane of that size and magnitude with that type of storm surge inundates, a significant portion of the Florida coastline where a lot of electric vehicles are and a lot of Tesla's, um, you know, I don't, I don't think it's out of the realm of, you know, expectation that these type of events happen. And, you know, it's, you know, still looking at, you know, the, what has happened down there, that EV fires still appear to be fairly rare. I mean, we're not seeing, every ev that was submerged in salt water catching on fire it is it is only a few 
Mm. Okay. Well, uh, in somewhat, uh, well, in <laughs> I'm going to edit out this mumbling part here. <laughs> the coffee. If, if I did it, in. you'd leave it in. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would highlight it. Um, one of my favorite senators from the state of Connecticut, Senator Blumenthal, um, pushed for the uh, the Stop Frontovers Act, um, which is something we've kind of talked about before, where the dangers of um, these high vehicles and children getting injured because the cars lack cameras and things of that nature. And I believe, uh, Mr. Michael here, you helped work on this issue correctly. And I timed that perfectly for him to cough. I timed my mute perfectly as well. So it worked oh, out. Well done. The um yeah, that's a that's a good bill and it's it's good for a number of ways. I think first, it, it gets to the real heart of the problem here, which is identifying these crashes and these incidents, because there's no really good way for data on these instances to be captured the way that NITS is currently collecting state data. There's um because like NHTSA's fatality data, data ugh, edit that out. NHTSA's fatality database um, only contains incidents, first of fatalities, it doesn't include injuries. And also it only focuses on on-road incidents. So it doesn't pick up the type of low-speed incidents in driveways or in parking lots or things that um, places uh, where these incidents happen. And as we see, as we've talked about um, a lot on this on, on the podcast vehicles are getting bigger and bigger and the blind zones around them are getting bigger um, not to mention the weights which are very concerning um, and the blind zones um, have and on some of these large SUVs and pickups that are coming out you'll see these weird big hoods on them that look almost uh, you know completely non-aerodynamic these big hoods and grills and the drivers can't see over them to the extent they can on smaller cars, particularly vehicles with sloping hoods. So you're missing a big portion of your field of view there um, where there could be any number of kids stacked in front of the vehicle, as we've seen on um, news programs. I believe the Today Show covered it on Monday and um, NBC4 in Washington's covered it. And um, they've done these simulations with children in front of vehicles. And you can even use um, short adults uh, in front of some of these vehicles and it's really difficult to see a person in front of your car and most of the vehicles that are like that most of the larger vehicles in america right now because there's no frontal visibility standard that basically puts a camera on the front or some sort of other system pedestrian automatic emergency braking might work that would um, eliminate or mitigate these kind of incidents so uh what are the odds of this act passing getting approved going ahead well, we'll see what happens here in a couple of weeks with the election, and I'll know more then. Uh, all right, then. Uh, somewhat related to children more is uh, school bus safety in the National Association of State Directors of Pupil Transportation Services. That is a mouthful. 2019 Stop Arm Survey. I don't know what Stop Arm means. 130,963 school bus drivers reported that 95,319 vehicles passed their buses illegally on a single day. Um, throughout a 180-day school year, the sample results point to more than 17 million violations among 
America's driving public. Now, I remember as a kid, uh, when school buses started putting on those stop signs, they would come to a stop at a bus stop and projecting from the left side of the bus, a stop sign would come out and vehicle um, flashing lights. And I, cause I remember there was a kid on my soccer team when I was, I don't know, eight, nine years old. He got hit by a car passing a, a bus. Um, and so this is a, this is, this is a pretty shocking, um, statistic. Yeah. That's a lot of, you know, bad behavior. Something we've talked about frequently in this case, it's something that's, I don't know. I, I'm scared of school buses the way I am of motorcycles. When I see one, I, I really try to focus on my surroundings because you never know where the kids are jumping out. With a motorcycle, it's a little different. You, you, you're just trying to make sure you keep it in your uh, field of view because that one brake light is sometimes tough to track. Um, but in this case, you know, people are literally, I mean, the statistics are kind of stunning there. I mean, of, you know, I think it was around 75% of every bus driver in the survey that was operating on that one day in the country had been passed by somebody while they had the school bus stopped with the stop arm out and presumably lots of yellow lights on the school bus blinking. I mean, it's impossible to miss unless maybe you're, you're, uh, running on autopilot. Uh, but I don't know. I, I just don't know how Americans think that's okay. <laughs> oh, so that's what stop arm means. Okay, that's the, the when the stop sign. Yeah, and you'll see them in various sizes. Some, I mean, they call it an arm, but on some school buses, it's more of a, a stop sign flapping out. You know, but right, on some buses, it's an actual arm that extends out in the road, um, which, you know, is probably a little more effective. You know, obviously, the most effective stop arm would be, you know, lowering a giant telephone pole or something that was actually <laughs> a stop arm but we haven't gotten there yet <laughs> we'll work on that I, I don't know if you guys saw today in the washington post this morning this is school bus related too um that more and more school districts are moving to electric school buses and in uh the Mont montgomery county public schools uh in the dc region in maryland uh they had the biggest single order they ordered 326 electric buses um, and this was good news in terms of uh, reducing diesel emissions because they point out that most people um, taking school buses are um, minorities um, and, and communities where there's a lot of air pollution. So I thought this was pretty uh, a neat little thing, not safety related, but um, you know. well, I mean, I, I it is to an extent because, you know, we already talked about how they're adding basically a third of the weight and batteries onto some of these vehicles so how big does a school bus get then i don't know they they said it took um i think it was uh four hours to fully charge because the range was only like 110 miles yeah um, because uh most school routes are well under 100 miles uh, they're a good that's a good case for evs there because you're not going you you have pretty much a set set route every day um i you know you're moving the pollution from the city elsewhere i don't know what fred thinks about that but it's a um you know that's a that's a good case i think for using electric vehicles provided you have you know a substantial amount of emergency exits and egress for the passengers in case of a fire i can't imagine there's a small number of batteries on those vehicles well in relative terms it should be pretty small because of limited range that they require you're only used for a couple hours and, you know, they're probably going 20, 30, maybe 40 miles. 
to pick up the kids on an individual route. So yeah, as you said, it's an ideal application, probably relatively small number of batteries uh, compared to the gross weight of the vehicle. Well, I thought that was pretty uh, neat. Okay. Um, I'm going to jump into, oh, actually, no, no, we're going to, we missed this topic last week. And this is about speed limiting technology in new cars, um, which (laughs) unless you live in the state of Montana, you probably think is a good idea. Um, Basically, we, we know that most car accidents happen because people are driving way too fast. Most fatalities happen because people are driving way too fast. I have no idea why I can go out and buy a car that will go over 200 miles per hour or at least it's speed speedometer will show that or 180 miles per hour. Um, that was definitely not on my driver's test. Hey, how fast can you go? I don't know why we sell cars that have ludicrous mode in them, but Hey, it's America. Well, it's um, never been, you know, it's never been stopped. It's never been regulated and it's, you know, what consumers demand. I mean, for some reason, folks think that's, reasonable to buy vehicles that are going to go that fast on public roads. Um, I know at NHTSA, you know, back in the late seventies, NHTSA was working briefly on a proposal to limit speedometers to 85 miles per hour, which is also somewhat problematic because when someone's traveling faster than 85, I think you need them to have an indicator of their speed. Um, the other solution back, you know, could have been, you know, don't make cars that go over a certain speed, but you know, that's Americans didn't, if those had come out, I, I, I have my doubts about whether Americans would have bought those. Can you imagine being the kid at school that has the vehicle that only goes up to 75? What are your friends going to say? There's a lot of, there's a lot of things going on there that, um, you know, in America that, that make us think we somehow deserve these cars that exceed the speed limit. Um, but, some of the people that are pushing back against intelligent speed assistance are making these arguments like you don't need to run from a tornado or any any number of running from criminal acts or running your pregnant wife to to the emergency room as pushback against the um, technology and those are all exceedingly rare events and the fact is that as isa is being implemented in europe and um, when it's implemented in america it looks like it may be a something drivers can just turn off so that's not a good thing Um, that basically means the people who want to speed will simply turn it off every time they get in their car and go about uh you know with their risky driving behaviors. So, um, that's true, but it's kind of like opt in versus opt out for computer ads and, you know, computer privacy protocols. So I think that if you are free to exceed that limit, but you've got to do something every time you do it, it's a constant reminder that perhaps you're endangering yourself and the people around you. So with the ISA, with the, proviso that if you want to exceed the the posted speed limit you have to push a button or do something whistle dixie who knows what um as i I think it's quite reasonable but uh, you know as you said the the hyperbolic arguments that the world is going to end and why do you hate freedom if you have a speed adjustment on your car those those hold no water 
I think we should have that button that says, you know, like, hey, I'm going to override this. And when you press that button, you hear Judas Priest's song, breaking the law, breaking the law. That would be that would be great because then people are like, all right, I am going to break the law right now. There is an accelerated uh, warning system um, if you don't regulate your speed in time, I believe, in those systems. And that could be part of that. You know, the, the as you got to the, the higher speeds, it could start playing Judas Priest. Now, what I'd like it to do is disable your vehicle right there in the middle of the road. And that until you get awesome. it towed and reset. Um, that's what these that's what these systems don't do. Um, that I think, you know, if we're going to truly end this feeding fatalities and injuries, we're going to have to just start shutting off the cars of speeders or limiting them to speed to the speed limit or to reasonable excursions from the speed limit. Um, because otherwise the people who really want speed are going to turn these systems off. It's no brainer. I mean, we can redo those public safety ads from like, what was the early eighties, late seventies where it was a uh, speed kills. But it wasn't about driving. It was about, you know, the drugs, speed. I think it was, maybe it was about driving. I don't know. You know New York is doing a pilot program. Uh, I think it's on city vehicles where they are installing, I think, telematics that monitor the speed of the vehicles and can prevent them from exceeding speed limits. So that's something that's super interesting. I think it's one of the few programs in the country like that that's looking at this technology. And it's... Um, the results haven't been uh, put out yet since they're still studying as a pilot program, but um, it'll be interesting. That's another approach that we think, you know, going back to some of our vehicle to infrastructure conversations previously, that's an approach where, you know, maybe in 2026 vehicles will start being manufactured so that when they hit New York city lines, they are limited by telematics to certain speeds. And, um, whether that can be something that could be deployed across the country in rural areas is a big question, but it could certainly um, be done in um, urban environments. Hmm. I'm going to restrict my freedoms. I see how it is. America. <laughs> Look, hey, if I want to be doing 70 miles per hour through Manhattan streets, I'm going to do it. All right. On to um, recall roundup. Strap in. Time for the recall roundup. Um, we've got some fun ones today. Over 70,000 semis lose their speedometer display. Um, this was a, this was a tough one for me to follow cause it's multiple pages and I have a short attention span. Um, basically the 15 inch digital display on Packer, is that how you pronounce that? Pack, Packer incorporated, uh, semis, um, have a, a software problem and is this is this a software related problem where hey we're not going to show current indicators and warnings such as speedometer telltales and this may increase the risk of a crash the description is the software did not properly handle errata oh yes errata that pesky errata um yeah this is i mean obviously as you know i was just talking about losing your speedometer when you're going over 85 losing it in a heavy truck when you're going any speed is a uh, concern and it was also i believe some turn signals and there were basically this is a lot like some of the issues we've talked about where manufacturers are taking all these buttons we used to have and they're putting them into a 
um, central display. And this is an example of some of the issues that occur when that happens. Um, you, the, <laughs> I don't know what the errata is. Um, that doesn't make sense to me. Um, but you know, like most soft, like most recalls are headed towards now, this one was fixed with a software update. So there was apparently no physical issue with the vehicle, um, other than it's bad software. Mm. That happens. All right. Uh, cooktop stove recalls. Now, Michael, you sent this one wrong with a with a link that, the, but unfortunately, the link didn't go quite crazy. Cool. Um, you didn't want to see that anyway. It was a spreadsheet. Oh, good. I definitely didn't want to see that. That's way too much. Um, so, cooktop stove recalls. What is this in inside RVs? Yes. Oh, inverted flame. All right. Um, so you took a dive into the data to see what's up with the inverted flame. Talk so to us about this. This is a problem that the RV industry seems to have been aware of since 2017 or so. It was the first recall I saw. And basically, there is the RV's furnace. Um, I don't know if it's air conditioning, heating, furnace system is installed near the cooktop uh, area, which is a gas cooktop. And when the furnace is on at the same time as the cooktop there, for some reason, their airflow is not isolated from one another. The, the cooktop is not sealed. And it I think it basically causes the flame instead of going up to go down. And <laughs> what that does is ignites uh, or damages the propane gas lines and can lead to an explosion and lots of bad things. And, it's pretty clear this is a problem that everyone in the industry was aware of five years ago, and yet they're continuing to put RVs on the road. I think it looked like as, as recent as 2022 um, with unsealed cooktops and this furnace problem. It's, it's um, you know, this is one of those things where I'm sure some of the other manufacturers look at the RV industry and laugh and chuckle a little about their designs because that's a clearly bad design. I don't think we'd see that make it into a, um, a passenger vehicle. Um, and a that's cooktop? Been, God, I hope not. <laughs> not just the cooktop, but the, the, the putting, but it seems to me, and maybe Fred can speak this better than I can, but and putting a source of, uh, you know, I think it was a, a furnace that can create negative airflow anywhere near an open flame created by a gas line is, just seems like a horrible idea. Yeah, generally speaking, uh, when you design a stove, you don't want it to self-ignite. Generally speaking, you want to <laughs> be, your you know, to have that under user control. Uh, so I'm, I'm, my question here is, you know, why the hell are you still building RVs that have this problem when all of you are clearly aware that there's an issue here? Um, it seems like they're not really catching up to um, some of the ongoing problems in their industry here. It's five years worth of cooktop stoves inverting and possibly blowing your RV up. All right. So keep that in mind the next time you buy an RV. And on to my favorite part of recall roundup motorcycles there we go and now this one's fascinating because harley davidson you know um makes a tricycle because <laughs> that's what i think what i think harley davidson i think big tough guys on a three-wheeled tricycle uh they're recalling um almost two hundred thousand vehicles of their uh model year 2019 to 2022 trike um 
because uh, there's a software error uh, again that determines if when the brake lamp should be illuminated w why is software controlling brake lights i mean uh, you know are are brakes no longer that mechanical control are we doing brake by wire now apparently yeah I'm, I'm a little confused as to as to why the um brake input needs to go through some kind of software before your lights turn on i mean here here apparently it looked like it was the lights were remaining on um right. so it may be that you know whatever soft whatever timing uh software they have there for the brake lights staying on may be involved which is why the software was there but i you know a motorcycle it's pretty critical that your brake lights work properly because you know it's like i said earlier it's it's something you as a driver you really have to focus on um you know i, I think i've seen some vehicles um where which i thought was a very good idea when people are braking hard the lights flash yeah rather than flicker. merely come on so that would that oh. would be under software control because it'd be monitoring the pressure in the brake system uh, generally, I think that's a great idea. I sometimes, you know, flash my own lights when I'm breaking hard just to make sure the person behind me isn't asleep. So maybe that's what the situation's all about. You're not afraid of giving the person behind you a seizure because of flashing lights? Not a concern for me, no, sir. I may be uh, insensitive that way, but I just Clearly. let that one slide. All right, good. And you all can't right. please everyone all the time. No, no, I... I, I try not to please anybody anytime because then they get expectations all right here's a good one how do we get manufacturers to install better sensors of course a price plunge so this is going to lead us into so this is something we've talked about before the cost of lidar and radar and all these wonderful sensors on your modern car to tell you what's in front of you what's behind you what's next to you um and you know we're just gonna jump right into the towel of fred with this and uh today's uh little soup is gonna be lidar how's that work for you mr fred you've now entered the dow of fred well thank you for the introduction um yeah, well, what I wanted to talk about are radar, LIDAR, and sonar, because these acronyms get thrown around a lot, and people have some misunderstanding about what they are, and um, no doubt there still will be after we discuss it, but hopefully I'll <laughs> eliminate some of the issues. So uh, radar, LIDAR, sonar, what do they all have in common? The, what they all have in common is they're remote sensors that use radiated energy to try to identify objects or situations that are around the vehicle that affect vehicle safety. So there are a few useful terms um, for these. The one is resolution, which is the size of an object or detail that can be distinguished by the sensor. Higher resolution requires a higher frequency medium that is being used to detect the vehicle. So the medium could be either sound waves or light waves or uh, radio energy. But the higher the frequency, the better the resolution that's available, or the higher the resolution. Uh, the frequency is the number of pulses per second in the information that you're radiating out to try to detect these images. So higher frequency enables better resolution, but unfortunately better resolution implies the need for more complicated sensors and or more processing power. So think of... Uh, you know, looking at the Earth from a telescope in space, 
and you want to see every leaf that's on a tree, there's a hell of a lot of leaves down there. So you could theoretically have sensors that could detect each individual leaf, but you're going to have to spend a lot of time and a lot of processing power to count each leaf. So there's kind of a trade-off between the resolution and the speed of processing, and you need to consider that when you're doing a system design. So that brings us to radiated power. It's the amount of energy per, per second or per unit time that's being projected out of the vehicle into space so that you can create the signals, the echoes, if you will, that allow you to resolve this information that, that's out there. And radiated power is, of course, this power you have to provide to it. It's, you know, it's limited by the amount of power that you have in the vehicle. But there are also statutory limits on how much radiated power you can have. You don't want to have as much radar power in a car as you would have in a radar that you're using to detect incoming intercontinental ballistic missiles, for example, that are a thousand miles away. So there's a there's a balance there as well. Do I need that on my car? You may. Are you going to be driving towards Ukraine? Uh, possibly in a hurricane with my pregnant wife. Something to think about. Uh, sensitivity is the strength of the signal that can be detected based on the reflected energy. So if you have a very sensitive receiver, it can detect very small signals. And it's the sensitivity is associated with the signal strength above the noise in your receiver, which is always there. Nothing can listen with infinite sensitivity. Um, and then the final two terms that are really important are the field of view which is the angular breadth of the sample space for a fixed sensor. So think of yourselves picking up a pair of binoculars, putting it on your eyes, and you see from edge to edge um, a certain angular range. That's the field of view. But related to that is the field of regard. So if you take those same binoculars and you turn your head from side to side, you can see a much greater extent of you know the world around you and that much greater extent is the field of regard. So the field of view is, is smaller, field of regard is larger, and field of regard requires you to move the sensor or, or move the you know move the aperture that you're using to view it. And Field of Dreams was a movie about baseball. It is indeed. I get all the fields in there. I like that. And, and, and I have good regard for that field, by the way. It was a decent movie. <laughs> so, uh, so what's the difference? Okay, sonar uses reflected sound. And uh, sonar and ultrasonic sensors are used more or less interchangeably in this context. So it's a high-frequency information. It's, it's high-frequency sound that is above the range that a human being can hear. Animals can hear some ultrasound. There's a, a big range of ultrasound available. And the ultrasound that's used in your imaging of your pregnant wife's um, fetus or you're about to be a child, is, very, is relatively high frequency. You can see a lot of details internal to that, you know, internal to that view. Um, lower, lower frequency, which has higher range and less diffusion or dispersion as you use it in the atmosphere, is what's used in cars for things like uh, automatic emergency braking, Proximity sensors, making sure you don't bump into something in your garage. It doesn't is that, have. Is it? I was wondering about sonar. Is it? Are those uh, ultrasonic waves? Do they travel at the speed of sound? So is that only you know seven hundred odd miles per hour that they're moving? And does that impact the safety 
of vehicles or do the do those type of systems use a higher speed sound i don't even know how to how to put that question but i think no, you, you, put it, I mean. you put it quite well and it's a great question um all the sound moves at the same speed <clears throat> because that's a property of the air it's not a property of the energy that's going through the air so it's, for those of you who really want to geek out it's uh, wearing your geek flag here it's called the bulk modulus of elasticity of the air and that's what causes the uh, the property of that is the speed of sound through the air. So it's, it'll always be the same for sound. The only thing that can exceed that is a shock wave, which is like a supersonic aircraft. But supersonic means you're above the speed of sound. So anytime you're using sound, it'll be the same speed. Um, higher frequency sound has much more dispersion. It dissipates rapidly. So there's a limit between the frequency that you can use, which can give you high resolution, and the dispersion of the sound, which means that you get less of it back. So there's kind of a balance there as well. And they only that, seem to use that in cars just for um, like parking assist and whatnot. Is for emergency braking, is that more radar or? Well, it can be either radar or it can be sonar or it can be a combination of the two. Got it. Because the radar can reach out a little bit farther than the sonar. You're limited in the amount of uh, energy that you're putting out in the sonar. And, of course, that's going to determine. I mean, think of sonar as an echo, right? Have you ever been yeah. somewhere in a valley and you yell hello and it you know, sends an echo back, hello? Well, if you know that the speed of sound is 1,100 feet per second, then you can determine how far away the wall is that's reflecting your, your signal. Right. Right. And that's the same way that the ultrasonic sensors work. So they send out pulses of information. They listen for that pulse to come back. They know what time the original pulse was sent out. And they know what time the pulse reflection comes back to the receiver. And the difference between those times, knowing the speed of sound, gives you how far away that object is. Okay. So, the, so the speed of sound necessarily means that there's going to be a delay uh, in sensors relying on sonar versus obviously LIDAR, which relies on light and the, um, or the other one that relies on uh, radio waves, radar, right. right? Right. That's correct. So that's, that could be, that's not, you know, that's not meaningless. Um, that could be certainly impact, you know, AEB and other crashes because there's going to be, um, I don't know how long the delay would be a few milliseconds before, in, in, in the vehicle, um, in the inputs that the vehicle is receiving so that it can, you know, decide whether or not to brake. Well, think of it this way. Every second of delay is one foot for sound, okay? It's actually two feet because you've got the time bounce. for the sound to reach the object and then have the time come back. So every millisecond implies two feet of, of motion that you lose when you have an ultrasonic signal versus the light, which of course is very fast. The radio waves travel at the same speed as the light waves. So that's, a, that's all electromagnetic energy that all has the same speed. So that's the story of sonar, okay? It's really useful for detecting stuff that's close to your car. It can tell you, you know, if there's a gross object that's close to your car. It's not good at refining small details of that object. So it, 
it, it probably would have a great difficulty detecting the difference between a fire hydrant and a small person, right? Those Because the details that we can see are not apparent to the sonar sensor. But it's great for telling your car how close it is to a wall because, you know, the wall is giving you a substantial image as long as you're not too far from the wall. So that's, against that's kind of... Go ahead, Anthony, what? First against the wall. Isn't there some song about a wall, too, that... Up against yeah. the wall or something like that. Isn't there the wall by Pink Floyd? <laughs> oh yeah, that's what I'm that's what I'm thinking. And Sonar will also keep you from um, running into submarines, right? I thought you guys would be all over that. Yeah, well that's yeah, it's it's better in submarines because the sound travels better through water than it does through air. Also a lot faster uh through water than it does through air. So it's 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 very useful there. Also, you can't really use radar in the water because the salt bridge issues we were talking about earlier with the uh uh, electric batteries, the car batteries. Okay, so radar is radar is a very can be a very sophisticated use of radio energy, and it operates kind of the same way. There's a pulse that goes out of the radar, it hits an object, gets reflected back, and the radar measures the time it takes to leave the uh, sensor, hit the object, and come back. But light's traveling very fast, so this allows you to you know reach out and and figure out very quickly how far away that object is from the sensor. It's limited by the processing time, but computers work pretty fast. Um, but there's a lot of differences in how the radar information can be used. You can use it for figuring out the speed of the vehicle, and that's why police love it, right? They've got a what's called a homogeneous radar. It sends out the same frequency all the time, and the difference in the frequency that gets reflected back will tell them how fast the car is moving. So that's really useful, at, you know, with a single point to just say, okay, I'm, I can see this object that's moving this fast. That's great. The problem in cars is you want to see three-dimensional objects and get and get the information that will resolve what that is. So you've got to look at not only just a single point, you've got to look at a whole range of points within, again, the field of view. And if you want, and so if you have a fixed sensor. For the radar, it's only looking within that field of view. If you have the ability of slewing that radar sensor back and forth, it gives you a much larger area that you can look at, that, that larger field of regard. But within each point, within that slewing area, it's got to do that same processing as though it were a fixed sensor. So that's, you know. That sounds more complicated than it really is, but you know you can sweep through an area using the sensor, or you can just look at one area. Now, there's a big difference though between that and lidar because the way lidar works is it's it sends a light, but it's laser light. So there's a very single there's a very small single point it sends out, and it gets the information back, and it uses again that time difference between emitting the signal and receiving the signal back, or looking at it through a telescope is basically what it's doing, to tell the distance to the object. But it's only looking at a very small point, right? So you've got to send out a jillion points to cover the entire field of view that you're looking at with the sensor. And different ways of doing that, you can sweep it with like a, a, a vertical scan and sweep it across the area. You can look at it that way. If you have a lot of different sensors inside your telescope, um, and that's you know it's different 
So the point is, there's different ways of doing that. But however you do it with LiDAR, you have what's called a revisit time. Because each time you're taking a point, you're looking at only a single very small area of that uh, field of view or field of regard. So you have to revisit it from time to time. And that revisit time is lost information about the status of the object while you were looking at something else. Okay, so there's always a finite amount of time between two different images that can be received by the LIDAR. Resolving dynamic objects within the field of view relies upon the processing that is behind the LIDAR. So it's, it's the same problem as though you're looking at the Earth through a satellite telescope and trying to count every leaf that's on the Earth. It would just take you time to do that. And then if the leaves are moving, you'd have to come back and say, okay, I'm, I'm doing all this complex processing. Now this damn leaf has moved. And so, you know, let's, let's figure that out, which requires more processing. So it's, it's a more complex process. That's why the LIDARs tend to be expensive. There's, there's just a lot going on with the LIDARs. On the other hand, they give you very good resolution. So you can resolve the features of an individual object at a pretty good distance. And it seems that's what the GM crews and the Waymo vehicles, they use those LIDAR. I mean, I'm sure they use radar as well, but they have those large spinning kind of discs on top being LIDAR yeah. projecting out and building the world. That's around. correct. And the spinning, the spinning is because you have to revisit, right? you got to revisit time. So each time it spins, it's sweeping through an area, collecting data, storing that in memory. Then it comes back around, looks at that same angle again, has anything changed within that angle? Uh, and, and so that's, you know, that's kind of how it works. If, you know, and what it sees is based upon its, its own motion. So if it sees an object by the side of the road that has moved the same amount as the vehicle has moved, it can say, okay, that's a stationary object. I don't really need to worry about that. If on the other hand, it looks ahead of the car and it sees an object that has the same distance in between visits, it says, well, okay, that object is moving at the same speed as I'm moving. So it's something that it would, you know, detect as another vehicle. So there's a lot of complex processing that goes on. Um, each of these has strengths and weaknesses, useful for different, different uh, applications. And you can combine this information using sensor fusion that we talked about last week to get a, a good appreciation for what's surrounding the car and what's surrounding the vehicle. Um, and let's see, what else do we need to talk about? Okay, LiDAR, of course, is using light. So things that interfere with light interfere with radar or interfere with LiDAR. So dust, dirt, um, heavy rain, all those things can limit the effectivity of the LiDAR. The radar tends to be less sensitive to moisture because of the frequency that they're using. It's much higher than uh, what's called KU band or KA band, but, but never mind. KA band and KU band are used in microwaves because they're heavily absorbed by radar. Okay, so that's what you want in a microwave oven. If you want to use it for sensor purposes, you don't want that because you, you want the light to come back to you and not get absorbed by water. So that's why they use a higher frequency for the, the radar that they're using for ranging and de and detection. Um, sonar, of course, uses sound. So it's, 
Uh, sonar is pretty insensitive to water. They use it underwater after, after all. But because of the differences in the speed of sound between air and water, if there's really heavy uh, rain content around the radar, it can give it ambiguous results. So in, in heavy downpours or a big splash or something like that, the radar can get confused about what's going on as well. So these are all... Confused. Go ahead. I get confused with heavy downpours. It's hard to see. It is. Right. It is. Yep. And and you get confused about many things, Anthony. We <laughs> love you anyway, but <laughs> that's fine. Are we recording? Um, <laughs> anyway, so that's the, that's kind of the story. I know it's complex, but I, I just wanted to lay out how all these sensors can do similar things. But when you overlap the the range of detection that they've got and the kind of information they provide, you can, in fact, get a very good artificial view of, of uh, for the computer in the car of what the heck is going on around it. If you start to take away these sensors, then you, of course, restrict the view and whatever virtues that sensor brought to the overall sensor fusion and the overall perception of the world around the vehicle is lost. Is that good enough? Is, you know, is this, is the safety that you have still enough safety? Those are questions yet to be determined. And and as always, Anthony, there are no regulations concerning what's good enough, what's safe enough. How do you need to arrange these sensors in order to have a um, adequately safe vehicle? Can we so, start wrapping cars in bubble tape? Like that's pretty good, right? That will help impacts. Yeah, they basically start doing that with satellites that they're that there are vehicles that they're landing on foreign planets. They, I don't know if you knew this, but when they land, when they landed some sensors on Mars, they basically oh, yeah. deployed an airbag just before they hit the ground, and so it, you know, it hit the ground, bounced back, rolled around a little bit, and uh, they deflated the airbags and successfully rolled out the the Mars uh, explorers. So, fantastic use of airbags. Yeah. Okay. So we have internal airbags. Why don't we have external airbags? Come on, that's what oh, we need. Yeah, on airplanes too. <laughs> On everything, cookware, wherever you need, like that. Children. <laughs> oh, my word. Okay, so um, the problem with LiDAR in the past has been it's super, super expensive. But now it looks like the cost of LiDAR is coming down dramatically and more and more uh, auto manufacturers are investing in it. I know, uh, what was it? It's Volvo's coming out with a car next year that has um a bunch of lidar into it and volkswagen and gm just placed orders for um some more lidar sensors um all right, of this well, we, like we have thing. to remember though that not all lidars are created equal so if you have a lidar that's bolted to the front of your car it's not going to see what's to what's on the sides of your car if right. you have a lidar that's on the roof and spinning like you described yeah you can get a really good view around the car but you cannot get a view right in front of the car, as Michael was talking about earlier about the pickup trucks, right? Because there's an angle of it's got to look down in right. order to see right in front of your car. And uh, it, so it's not going to do that. So, again, where you place the LiDAR and the field of view that the LiDAR has got and the field of regard as well will have a lot to say about how useful that LiDAR is and the overall safety of the vehicle. But right, I, and, and these vehicles look like they're deploying 
I think it was four to eight different LIDAR sensors stacked around the vehicle to help with that issue. The individual LIDAR sensors are not nearly as complex as the kind you might see on Waymo vehicles where they're spinning and moving parts. I don't think there are any moving parts on these and they're a, a lot smaller. So, but they might, you know, it might work. It might help resolve a lot of those issues. Um, Sure. Well, there's one other thing I wanted to mention about LIDARs, and I was uh, remiss in not doing that. They have severe limits on how much power they can radiate because, of course, you have a very high intensity for wherever that spot beam is located, and you don't want to burn up the people around you or particularly their eyes if they happen to be looking at the LIDAR. So there's severe limits, significant limits on how much power they can radiate, and that gets back to ultimately the issue of how much information they can get back from the radiated power. So the 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 limit seems to be around a hundred meters or maybe a little bit, you know, maybe a little bit more depending on the frequency of in, uh, LIDAR that they use for useful information that can come back to the car from the LIDAR sensor. Now, a hundred meters is a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, that's not so bad, but it's you know it's it's not minutes away from where the car is going to be. It's seconds away from where the car is going to be. Yeah, it's a, and it all depends how fast you're going. I, I remember, I think, when 2015 or so, when we rode, I took a ride in the I think it was Google then, not Waymo, the Google car in DC, and we were seeing on the display inputs from I believe up to. 1600 meters in front of the car we could see traffic slowing down well in advance of even being able to see it in front of us um so i'm assuming that's a pretty powerful laser that you don't want being beamed into your eyes <laughs> yeah that's that's it would certainly be true if that's how they were doing it I, w- I would expect that to be more coming back from the radar than the lidar that may be the radar i'm certainly easily confused um one of the things on the LIDAR that I was wondering about is I I think I've read that there's some issues with it when it comes to stationary objects, um, that it's that it needs objects to be moving in order to be detected and classified properly. Is, does that sound correct, or am I just making that up? I Well, I don't know if you're making it up or not. You're pretty good at that. You're a lawyer <laughs> after all, so who can say? But... Um, I think that that's probably more a consequence of the processing that happens after the data is collected rather than the LIDAR itself. And and radar, for example, they have one kind of radar called the moving target indicator. And all it does is it tells you if the object is moving. Um, It doesn't tell you, it's specified to say, you know, the object is moving relative to the other objects around it so that it can look, for example, tanks or cars that are moving in a forest. It it doesn't care about the forest. It cares about the objects moving in the forest. So you can do the same kind of processing with a LIDAR to say, I I only want to see the objects that are moving. I don't want to see the objects that are stationary. LIDAR can be used for doing very precise measurements of stationary objects if it's optimized to do that. And that is a, a traditional use of it to image, you know, the, the pyramid of Cheops, for example, or to image the inside of a... Uh, ship where you've got pipes running every which way and try to figure out how to do renovations on a ship. So you'll you'll use the LIDAR to develop a very detailed image of that topography that is static. So 
you can use the ladder different ways and it has a lot of different applications depending on the software that you put downstream of the actual uh, sensor collection. All right, I think that covers LiDAR, radar, sonar, clinger, and all the rest of the cast of MASH. Um, thank you. Hey, no, thank you. That was uh, that was that was very in depth. I I didn't know these things about um, sonar specifically, and I'd like to pretend I knew some of it about lidar. Well, I noticed that you two are both awake, so I feel flattered. Uh, this this stuff can be a little bit baffling, a little bit hard to assimilate. Mm, and I think you are trying to assimilate us. Um, let's go into uh, listener mail. We've got good listener mail this week. Um, it might be a stumper. This is from Joe from Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, good morning to all of you. I am concerned about a new used vehicle. I'm a disabled veteran. We have a 2002 Ford Escape that has been to two transmission shops and is still leaking fluid. We have to add about a quart of fluid every day. He doesn't specify what kind of fluid. Uh, the transmission shop refuses to honor the warranty. We also have an oil leak or burning oil. We have to add oil every other day. Um, you know, please help us with our transportation needs. So, um, is this, uh, is this a lemon? No, cause it's too old to be a lemon. I know lemon, lemons can only be in the first year, right? And this is a 2002 Ford Escape that's leaking, I assume, transmission fluid and burning or leaking oil that is a that is an old car that has probably reached the end of its life um but what it sounds like is he he needs transportation options more than anything i don't think that car is getting him anywhere and it doesn't sound like he's in a position to go out and get a new one right now i know that i'm not with the inflationary effects of a lot of things going on in the world right. um i you know, I, I think I'll look at that and write Joe back with some suggestions. I, I believe there are some um, transportation assistance programs in Memphis that could probably help him. And also some, um, I believe he was, a, he's some veterans groups that might be able to help as well. But that's a little off of, uh, off of our daily beat, but we'll, we'll reach out and see what we can do. Well, hey, Joe, thanks for. Uh, well, I, I just, I just want to jump in and say we're, you know, we're certainly sorry to hear the situation and the transportation difficulties you've got. Uh, you've got to be very concerned about the safety of your vehicle um, for a couple of reasons. One is that some of these fluids can be flammable, and if they fall in the wrong part of your car and vaporize, uh, if you have an ignition source near that, um, it, things could turn out very badly for you. They can also affect the traction your vehicle has on the road if oil happen if oil or transmission fluid happens to get in front of a car uh excuse me of one of your tires and you need that traction in a critical situation so uh please be very concerned about that and i think that ultimately the only way to solve your problem is to rebuild either or both the engine and transmission and uh, if that's beyond your resources right now, you really need to look to some alternative transportation or some of the resources Michael just described. And also on that 2002 model, we filed a defect petition that was, I can't remember if it was granted or not, but the recall happened. Um, those vehicles had a, I think it was a transmission shift cable that could lead to sudden acceleration. And it happened in a number of occasions and uh, killed some people. So that's certainly something you want to make sure that you've gotten that recall done. If, 
if this car can be rebuilt and continued to be used. Well, I'm just pulling up right now the vehicle safety check section of the Center for Auto Safety website. And, oh, the recall date, 2015. Um, powertrain automatic transmission gear position indicator. Uh, this is... Um, this is about some bolts. Uh, not seeing anything with um, oh, oh, hydraulic fluids around analog brakes on recalls. Let's see. Brake, uh, you know, you can take a look. There's a, it looks like there's quite a few hydraulic issues uh, related to brakes and um, some transmission issues related with a 2002 Ford Escape. If you go to autosafety.org, you can find out this information. And you can donate, too, while you're there. But anyway, Joe, thank you very much for writing in. Um, Michael will get back to you with some alternative uh, suggestions for transportation. And before we go, there's one note here that I see. Um, there's no information provided with it, so it's going to be my favorite one. It says, sarin in your lithium-ion battery? Question mark. Now, are you offering to put sarin in my lithium-ion battery? Or is there sarin in my lithium-ion battery? What's going on? Well, I was, well, uh, yeah, there's Fred. <laughs> Fred was the one I wanted to lead into anyway, because it, I don't know what a homologue of sarin is, which was part of that, that note. <laughs> a what a, what a? Well, I'm looking up that particular uh, article right now, but it turns out that the combustion products of uh, lithium ion batteries, standard lithium ion batteries that have uh, organic solvents in them include a class of chemicals that are uh, related very closely to sarin, which is, a, of course, a, a well-known, very dangerous chemical. And um, so that's what the homologue is all about. And I'm, I'm looking right now, I thought I had that <clears throat> right at hand, and I don't seem to have it right at hand, but and this goes back, I think a couple episodes we were talking about, you know, we were, I think we were talking about the EV uh, fire issue in Florida and EV fires in general. And, you know, some of the, some of the chemicals that might be occurring when these fires occur, you know, what, um, what's being released into the atmosphere, what's being siphoned off of the battery into the groundwater because they're putting 10,000 plus gallons of water onto all these batteries um, I don't think anyone's really looked into the stuff coming out of those batteries when you have fire events. Huh. Yeah, yeah. So I, I did look into that a little bit, and that's where I was finding that uh, that information. So I apologize that I don't have that at hand, but we could bring it up next week and fill in that blank. That sounds good. And also, if you're going to um, get an EV charger installed in your house, um, hire a professional electrician. Yeah. Hire someone who's certified. There is a Monroe and Associates. They have a popular YouTube channel and they had this kind of scary video about people's chargers, their outlets melting and all these things happening. And they were having a master electrician say, hey, we need all standards on this, where the answer really just seemed like, hey, you need to hire a professional electrician um, and use better outlets than what are used on your uh, electric dryer. So... Be safe. Be smart. This is not a do-it-yourself project um, unless you happen to be a master electrician. And on that note, uh, I'm going to go take a nap. So, hey, listeners, thanks for 
uh, taking part and uh, and donating because I know you're out there and I know you want to donate. Thanks, everyone. Thank you very much. It's been a privilege to speak with you today. <laughs> that, that's just what his parole officer makes him say. <laughs> <laughs> Till next week. Bye-bye. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.